imagine Christmas morning, which is going to be a Sunday this year, actually. So you get up, and uh, before you come to worship with God's people here, you open gifts around the tree, and you find under the tree a gift with your name on it, and you open it up, and it is a parachute, like a real parachute set, the whole thing. What do you do with a parachute? I don't know if any of you have ever been skydiving. I have not. It's one of those things that I I want to say it's on my bucket list, but then I think about my wife and my kids and how high the stakes are, and I just think, probably not. But imagine you receive a parachute as a gift. Parachutes are made for one thing. I mean, you could probably get creative and find lots of uses for a parachute. They make those parachutes for kids that you just all hold the sides and toss a ball in the middle or run underneath them and use it like a tent or whatever. But a real parachute, they're just made to bring skydivers safely to the ground. That's what they're for. You could walk around. You could take your gift, strap it on, wear it, walk around on the ground, spouting off facts about parachutes and professing your undying love for parachutes. But until you get in an airplane, jump out of it, and completely entrust your safety and your well-being to that parachute, pull the ripcord, you haven't actually exercised any faith in that parachute. So what do you do with a parachute? Simple answer is you use it. You jump and you pull the cord and you trust it. The question I want to consider this morning is what do you do with a promise? What do you do with promises from God? What do you do with the word of God? At the burning bush on the mountain of God, God revealed himself to Moses in glory as the great I am. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, God speaks at the bush in great and precious promises, saying things from the fire to Moses like, I will be with you. I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. To which Moses as we saw last week, responded with questions, objections, and even outright refusal. The very last words at this point that we have heard from Moses came in chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. That, it turns out, is not what you do with a promise because that provoked God's anger in chapter 4, verse 13. 14. And God refused to accept Moses' resignation, but the question still has not been answered in the text, what is Moses going to do? How is Moses going to respond to this word from God? So I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 18 through 31. And if you're physically able, I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God and his word. The word of God is living and it is active And this is the word of God. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we receive your word. We believe it. We trust it. We desire to be edified by it, to be corrected and instructed, to be rebuked, to be built up, to be sanctified by your word. Your word is truth. We pray that it would dwell in us richly now for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31 describes Moses' return to Egypt in the obedience of faith. Trusting obedience to God. At the burning bush, Moses was full of excuses and doubts. God graciously God patiently overcame Moses' unbelief, and now we have our answer. Moses obeys God. That's the theme of this passage. Moses trusts and obeys God. The phrase, back to Egypt, appears four times right at the beginning of this narrative. And the passage ends with Moses and his brother Aaron in Egypt with all the elders of Israel trusting and believing God's word and worshiping. And while the journey itself spans hundreds of miles between Midian and Egypt, the account of the journey moves rapidly. Did you catch that? It rapidly through seven different scenes in the span of 14 verses. Each scene is one, two, or three verses long at most. The pace of the narrative is striking, as is the lack of detail here. At first glance, it seems almost disjointed. And random, doesn't it? Like, now what's happening? And where did that come from? And that lack of detail creates quite a bit of ambiguity. Lots of questions. I think the best way to understand this is to think of it as a montage. In movie making, a montage is a sequence of short clips edited together to pack in and show some extended period of time and maybe some great distance traveled by the characters. And all these brief shots show on the screen with some background music, and it gives you the understanding they went on a journey. Or, famous in a lot of American movies, is some 
athlete going through some training montage. It shows some training is needed, and then there's this sequence of clips showing that training. One of the most iconic training montages comes in the movie Rocky. When Rocky Balboa is shown, right, coming out, jogging in his gray sweats, just running through the streets of Philadelphia, punching that punching bag, boxing in a meat locker, slabs of cows, climbing the rocky steps, all these clips, right? Each one could raise a lot of questions. Don't get bogged down in the details. The point is, Rocky got to work. He started training. Things happened. He got serious. He's getting better. This is the ancient literature version of a montage, and it's best not to get sidetracked in all the speculation about the details we want to know that seem to be missing, but rather just to pay attention. How do all of these scenes together move the story forward? The point of the montage is not simply the fact that Moses went back to Egypt, but that he went back in trusting obedience to God. He's trusting God. What do you do with the word of God? What do you do with a promise from God? You trust and you obey. God's word makes things happen. It sets things in motion. It gets things done. Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. No matter how you feel, leaving the results to God. I get that definition from a mentor of mine in biblical counseling named Ron Alchin. That definition has served me personally many times in my life when I don't feel like it. Living by faith doesn't feel easy or fun or warm and fuzzy and the results are uncertain. Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it, no matter how you feel, leaving the results to God. When we say faith is not a work, we mean faith is not some billable deed you perform for God's benefit that leaves God owing you something. Faith is not a work in that sense. It does not earn anything from God. It does not merit or deserve any payment from God. It does not obligate God in any way. However, when we say faith is not a work, we don't mean faith is inactive, inert. You just sit there and say you believe. You take God at his word. Faith takes God at his word and acts. That's the obedience of faith. And it's evident in every scene of Moses' journey back to Egypt. What is it that compels Moses to return to Egypt? In every single scene, God speaks and acts Moses is trusting and obeying. Verses 18 through 23, Moses prepares to leave Midian. And the first matter of business for Moses was to respectfully seek permission from his father-in-law. Having a command from God, a call to return to Egypt, did not absolve Moses from his obligation to show respect to his father-in-law. And there's no need for us to speculate about what Moses would have done if Jethro had said no, because Jethro just gives his blessing. Simple as that. Just one verse, he says, go in peace. That's all. And that brief scene is a reminder, faith may not always feel comfortable. We learn in verse 20, Moses didn't return to Egypt alone. He took his wife and his sons. That that would be Jethro's daughter and grandsons. If you've ever said goodbye to close family, you know how difficult that can be. This goodbye was undoubtedly difficult. So when you're tempted to imagine walking by faith should just always be sunshine and roses and happy-go-lucky Not necessarily. Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it no matter how you feel. And in verse 19, God speaks to Moses again, 
giving Moses the green light to depart. Apparently at the bush, he gave him his commission, his call. Now back in Midian, God gives him the green light and the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And the very next verse tells us that Moses obeyed. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. And this pattern is common throughout the book of Exodus and other parts of scripture. First, God says what to do and then the text tells us in the exact same detail that Moses did what God said to do. And sometimes it sounds unnecessarily repetitive to our ears, especially, have you ever read the chapters in Exodus on the building of the tabernacle? You're reading through chapter 25 through 31. In great detail, God gives instructions about how to build every part of the tabernacle. Then you go on, chapter 32, 33, 34, you come to 35 and they start building the tabernacle and you're thinking, didn't I just read this? It's the exact same detail. First, the instructions how to build the tabernacle, and then the exact same detail describing that they built the tabernacle. And the point is, God is to be trusted and obeyed exactly as he says. When God speaks, you listen and you obey. If God says, go to Egypt, then trusting God means you go to Egypt. And so that's what the text says. Even that last detail, Moses took the staff of God in his hand, That's significant. These were God's last words. Let me remind you. At the burning bush, revisit that scene. Very last words at the burning bush. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So it's important that we're reminded. And Moses took not just his staff anymore, the staff of God in his hands. Moses begins to obey. Taking God at his word and acting on it, includes leaving the results to God. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is just kindness from God that he so prepared Moses for what he was about to face. My guess is you can relate There's been a time in your life where you've started to take steps of faith, maybe to put to death some sin in your life, to mature in some area, and then you quit because living God's way was slower and harder than you wanted it to be. Has that ever happened? I just wanted to get easy right away, and it didn't. It got harder. Part of living by faith is leaving the results to God. God prepares Moses for what is to come. This is going to be a process. God is going to be at work in it. So when that happens, don't stop trusting and believing. Living by faith requires perseverance. And at this point, God gives Moses a specific message to deliver to Pharaoh. Verses 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That phrase, thus says the Lord, appears over 400 times in Scripture. This is the very first one. This is the very first one. Walking in the obedience of faith, Moses now speaks and acts as God's very representative on earth, authoritatively delivering God's word 
to God's people as well as to Pharaoh. And what a word it is, a word of grace and judgment, a word of life and death, affection and wrath. This is the very first time in scripture that Israel is referred to as God's son, which is a tender expression of the father heart of God toward his people. Hundreds of years later, through the prophet Hosea, God would say more about this moment in Israel's history. Hosea 11 verses 1 through 4, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. God describes himself You've seen a parent or you've been a parent teaching a child to walk. You walk behind them. You you just put your fingers down. They grip your fingers unsteady as they walk along. You teach him to walk. That's how God describes himself. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took him by the arms. What love and affection and attention from God on his people. What a way for God to describe himself And with it comes a warning to Pharaoh. What do you do with a word from God? You trust and you obey, which means God's word is often full of warnings. What happens if you don't obey? If you refuse, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Sober warning. The necessity of obedience. But before Moses could deliver that message, there was another matter of obedience in his life that had to be addressed. Verses 24 through 26 happen at a lodging place on the way. We read in verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This scene is so abrupt and so ambiguous, the the question's just pile up like cars on an icy road. Like, to begin with, what? Why would God try to kill Moses, the one he chose for this task and appeared to at a burning bush, revealed himself to, spoke to, overcame all of his objections and questions, you're the man for the job. What? Also, why was Zipporah's immediate reaction to grab a knife and perform a circumcision? And also, what is a bridegroom of blood exactly? All the other scenes are straightforward enough. They might be brief and fast, but they're fairly clear. This scene just blindsides us with judgment and death and blood and circumcision. There's just no way to sanitize it. It's tense. It's uncomfortable. Exodus 4.25, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, is one of those Bible verses I guarantee you are not going to find on a coffee mug at the Christian bookstore or the word art home decor at Hobby Lobby. People don't put this verse up in their homes, it turns out. One scholar starts his study of this passage with these words, biblical scholars love this passage because it is totally incomprehensible. Just ripe for pages and pages and pages of speculation and argument and debate. And let me tell you, it's all out there. I grant that there are things here that are ambiguous, but I don't think it's totally incomprehensible. I think there's enough here that's clear for us to be edified. God means for that. When scripture is ambiguous, 
best practice is not to get sidetracked in the weeds of speculation about all the things that are not clear. What is clear is that Moses' firstborn son, maybe his sons plural, were not circumcised. And that detail connects this passage. It's not as random as it seems. It connects to the preceding verse where God just announced, what would he do to Pharaoh if he disobeyed? God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son as judgment for Pharaoh's disobedience. Moses' failure to circumcise his own son meant Moses had broken God's covenant with Abraham. This is a big deal. Keep in mind, God appeared to Moses announcing his intention to deliver his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt as the fulfillment of his covenant promise to Abraham. Exodus 2.24, it says God heard their groaning and God remembered what? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. A covenant is a solemn bond between God and his people. It comes with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And in Genesis 17, where God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham, reminds Abraham of his promises, I'm going to be your God and the God of your offspring. I'm going to bless you and multiply you. I'm going to settle you in this promised land. Then God says this to Abraham. This is Genesis 17, starting in verse 9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh in everlasting covenant. Verse 13, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. That's important context. Moses neglected to circumcise his son or his sons. Moses broke God's covenant. So how can Moses enter Egypt and confront the household of Pharaoh if his own household is out of covenant with God? God is a holy God and he requires complete trust and obedience. This isn't no way to soften that. And though the words are shocking, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death, what happens next shows us that this is actually God's fatherly discipline. He is teaching Moses to obey everything by faith, in detail. He's teaching Moses obedience. We, we know it's discipline because What happens in verses 25 and 26? Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. The the details are scarce, but it's clear from Zipporah's swift and decisive action. She understood what was going on somehow. We don't know how. We don't have to speculate about it. She knew what this was about. She knew it had to do with their failure to circumcise their son. Circumcision was the father's responsibility normally, but Zipporah performs the right here, presumably because Moses is so incapacitated by whatever's going on with him. We don't know. We don't need to speculate. He's just out of the picture. To our sensibilities, the shocking part of his encounter with God is the fact that the Lord sought to put him to death, right? That, that's what gets our attention. However, the real shock is the outcome. God let him alone. God let him live. This does not mean God tried and failed to kill Moses. 
If God meant to kill Moses, he would have killed Moses. Period. Would not have been hard to do. Rather, God is disciplining Moses and he intentionally leaves room for rescue. He leaves room, as one commentator says, for Zipporah to act as a mediator. Disobedience deserves death, but God opens the door for redemption. There should be nothing shocking to us at all about God's judgment, right? Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. There's no shock in that. Mercy is shocking. Not getting what you deserve. Now, no one really knows exactly what that phrase, bridegroom of blood, means. Other than the brief explanation. I'm encouraged by the fact that Moses, the author, felt some need to give a little brief explanation in verse 26, which means he even thought his ancient audience would have had some questions about that. He says, it was then that she said, bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. And we just say, oh, okay, because of the circumcision. (laughs) Okay, got it. Whatever else she meant by the phrase bridegroom of blood, it referred to the blood of circumcision. That much is clear. And the blood of circumcision, in this case, atoned for Moses' very life. The Lord sought to put him to death. Zipporah acted in faith, performed circumcision, smeared that blood on Moses' feet, and God spared his life. That's what happens. As Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this is totally consistent with God's character and with what he reveals about himself throughout Scripture. Moses' obedience, Zipporah's trust and obedience in God at this moment is a critical example of faith. To the nation of Israel as well as to us, this circumcision and Moses' rescue from death foreshadows the Passover that's going to happen in chapter 12. Spreading of blood over the doorpost of the house by which all who entered in that home would be spared from the destroyer of the firstborn. This prefigures that. You are safe under the blood of an innocent substitute. God is teaching his people something. God is teaching us something. And that old covenant sign of circumcision foreshadows the new covenant work of Christ. Through Jesus, God has established a new and better covenant with a new and better sign. And instead of circumcision, baptism is now the sign and seal of God's promise, the mark of those who belong to God. Paul explains, listen to these words in Colossians 2, 11 through 14. In him... Also, you were circumcised, that's in Christ, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. If you are in Christ, trusting in Christ alone, you have been united with him in baptism, you have had the exact same experience as Moses. You were dead. You were dead in your sins. And then you were raised to life by the blood of a substitute. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. If you're living in sin and rebellion against God, you are under the judgment of God, outside of his covenant protection, outside of his salvation. 
dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And yet, those are the very people God in his grace makes alive together with Christ. How? By forgiving us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Sin against God, a holy and just and righteous God is always a matter of death. It's not like, wow, God was really intense back then and good thing he lightened up. No, he's still the same holy God that he was there at that lodging place on the way. But he has provided his own son as the once for all sacrifice for your sin. Are you trusting in and relying on Jesus to save you from God's just wrath? Finally, we come in verses 27 through 31. Moses approaches and arrives in Egypt. Verse 27, a new character enters the narrative. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Notice how our introduction to Aaron happens with the exact same focus. God said, go, so Aaron went. Same thing. God speaks. This is the obedience of Faith And the two brothers are reunited at the mountain of God where once again Moses does exactly what God had already told him to do with the same details recorded for our instruction. This is what trusting God looks like. You remember the end of the burning bush encounter when Moses asked God, please send anybody but me, send someone else. God kindly promised that he would send his own brother Aaron to join him, to help him in this task, to do the speaking. And here's what God told Moses, Exodus 4, 15 through 17. You shall speak to him, Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So, so here's the relationship. Like, I'm speaking to you, Moses, putting my words in your mouth. You're going to speak to him, put the words in his mouth. He's going to do the speaking, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. So when they're reunited in verse 28, it should be no surprise to us at all the details that are recorded here for us, Moses does exactly what God says. Verses 28 through 30. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he, the Lord, had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. God said, say these words, do these signs. So first thing Moses does with Aaron, hear the words, here are the signs. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel and what do they do? Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Sounds familiar, right? And did the signs in the sight of the people. He spoke the words, he did the signs. Word and deed, show and tell, exactly as God commanded. Because faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. No matter how you feel, leaving the results to God. And look at the results that God brings about in verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That worship, that's the whole aim of the book of Exodus. There's more worship to come, more instructions to come about worship. But this scene of worship is striking because nothing has changed about their circumstances yet. They are still enslaved and oppressed people. This is Worship by faith. They have a word. God sees us. God knows. He cares. He's going to do something. And so they are worshiping in hope of God's fulfillment. 
They're acting on God's word. Trusting God for bringing it about. Leaving the results to God. So, what do you do with a promise from God? You grab hold of it. You cling to it. You don't let go of it. You trust in it. You act on it. No matter how you feel. Leaving the results to God. So what does that look like for you? What does that look like in your life right now? Perhaps you think something like, well, if, if God would just appear to me in the burning bush and give me turn-by-turn navigation for my life, I would gladly do that. I think it's easy to fall into that trap of kind of obsessing over wanting turn-by-turn direction from God. What job should I take? Where should I live? Who should I marry? What shirt should I wear? You just want, God, just make it clear. I'll just do exactly what you want me to do if you just tell me. God doesn't give us that kind of turn-by-turn navigation, but he has given you his written word. And in it, he reveals his will for your life. Things like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God your sanctification, or the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. To which we often say, I I don't want to do that. I just want to know if I should take this job or not. And God says, rejoice, pray, trust, give thanks, obey, Give your attention to those things that he has revealed. And he will make those other things clear for you. Take God at his word. Act on it, no matter how you feel. That might mean there's some sin to confess. Someone that you've wronged. Might mean there's some command from God to obey that you've neglected. Might be some promise for you to trust or a thought that's running through your mind. Anxious thought for you to take captive and bring under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Take God at his word and act on it, no matter how you feel, leaving the results to God, and he will be glorified in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which sustains us and keeps us and anchors us and grounds us and encourages us and corrects us. May we not neglect your word in our lives this week, the clear commands we have from you, the clear instructions from you. May we be a people who take you at your word and may your word take root in us and bear fruit. Oh God, it's your role to speak and initiate toward us. It is our role as your church, your bride, to bear fruit with the word that you communicate to us. And so may that fruit that abounds in our everyday lives. May it bring great glory to you. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.